The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 7th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Grab your Bible and make your way to the Old Testament book of Esther. We are coming to the close of the book of Esther. We're not going to finish it this morning. We're going to finish it next week, but we're getting close. Um, So I pray that our time in Esther for the last couple of months has been profitable for your heart. Um, We have have sought to hunt for evidences of God's grace and God's character and His goodness in this often overlooked, um, often mishandled and misaligned book. Um, And this morning, as we start to work our way through chapter 9, we're not going to get all the way through 9, but we're going to start. We're going to run head first into the big theme for the book of Esther. It's hard to remember because we read sections and stop and talk and come back next week and keep going. It's hard to remember that for God's people, the book of Esther would have been read in its entirety. So all these moments of of coincidence and suspense and intrigue and all these moments would be building up to something and we're going to run head first into the main theme, the main emphasis of the entire story, a a theme that would serve to anchor the hearts of God's people for millennia. And that's simply this, that our God is is indeed the God of great reversals, great reversals. But here's the thing, we're also going to run headfirst into a part of the Bible that is often very hard for people in the 21st century to grapple with. And as we read it, we'll see if you can pick up on it and and we'll spend some time with it. So Esther chapter 9, let's start in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it's all been building up to right here, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So there it is explicitly. Everything that we've been pointing out along the way, this moment and this moment and this thing and this thing, how it was reversed and how he had intended, we've kind of stolen the thunder from the writer of the book of Esther by talking about it along the way. But here's the thing. This is the emphasis for God's people. This is what the main point that God's people would take away from this story in their time is that their God and our God is indeed a God of great reversals. Even when they are faithless, He remains faithful. And even when He can't be seen, He's not absent. He's still at work. If you remember, we left off a couple of weeks ago with King Xerxes, the Persian king, allowing Esther and Mordecai to write, to craft a a counter-edict, a second edict to neutralize or at least try to diminish an edict he had allowed Haman, his second in command, to write months earlier. It was an edict that Xerxes gave his authority to that said that everyone in the Persian Empire on a specific day had the right to kill, destroy, and plunder any Israelite in the Persian Empire. And back in chapter 8, Xerxes gave Esther and Mordecai the authority to write a second one to try to neutralize the first one. 
And so in chapter 8, Mordecai and Esther did that. They, they wrote a counter edict and they mirrored the language of the first edict that Haman had written back in chapter 3 that allowed anyone to kill the Israelites. But their edict, the counter edict of Esther and Mordecai, was not an offensive edict. It was a defensive edict. It gave God's people the right to defend themselves on that very day against anyone who sought to kill, destroy, and plunder them. And if we had read it in its entirety and come to this point, you would see even in verse 1, the writer is still at work trying to build this tension. It's a specific day in a specific month that just happens to be the very day in the very month that Haman and his men had rolled the dice and come to earlier in chapter 3. This very day that destruction was to come to God's people, annihilation was to come to the Israelites on this day. The reverse occurred. And there are a lot more many reversals to come, but these reversals would emphasize to God's people that he is the one who can and often does reverse what in our minds seems irreversible. As irreversible as a Persian law, what seems impossible to us is possible in his purposes. So let's watch this reversal play out in the story. Verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And I I love the picture that the writer is painting here. When he says that the Jews gathered in their cities, he uses a Hebrew word that means working together in a united front. So as you read the story and you picture it in your mind, this isn't every Israelite for himself. This isn't every home for himself. This isn't every Israelite gathering their family, securing their home, waiting for someone to attack them with no idea, no care, and no concern for their neighbor next door. This is God's people uniting together. It's the Hebrew of the Greek word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3 when he says that you and I now, united together in Christ, stand side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. It's the same word in Hebrew. This isn't every man for himself. This is God's people together. And all of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors, verse 3, and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Mordecai seems to have wasted no time asserting his new authority. If you remember, Mordecai was now elevated to the second position, the highest position in the land, second to King Xerxes himself. He had the robes, he had the crown, he had the throne, and evidently, however he is operating, people are afraid of him. It's quite the reversal from the Mordecai we met earlier in the story, who was outside the king's palace at the gate in sackcloth and ashes and mourning. Now he's inside and he's great in the palace of the king. Verse 5, the writer says, it was on this day when this great reversal occurred that the Jews struck all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. So what you see right here is that this counter edict that Esther and Mordecai had written 
hoping to neutralize the earlier edict that Haman had written that gave everyone a chance to kill them when their counter edict was written and it said that they had the right and the authority of the king to defend themselves and kill anybody that came against them and it was sent throughout the entire empire. The writer said in chapter 8, posted up for everyone to see in their own language. It didn't neutralize everything. There were still many in the empire who hated them. On this day, the 13th day of this month, the Israelites were not out looking for a fight, but there were people who were still bent on destroying them. And so in verse 6, the writer says, in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed, and I've done it twice now, so let's see if I can get it a third time, Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Estatha, and Paratha, Adaliah and Aridatha and Parmashata. No, I didn't say that right. Arasai, Aridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. No, that's right. It sounded good, right? So here's a trick. If you're ever doing a Bible study with people and you have to go through names, just read them fast. <laughs> Everyone will assume you got it right because they can't say it either. All right? So when I stopped and said I missed it, well, you wouldn't have known. So there's a tip. Next time you're going through the Bible, just keep going, all right? The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but, this is important, make note of this, they laid no hand on the plunder. Now, this little section right here, it brings to the end, it brings to conclusion another reversal that's been working itself out in the story. If you remember back in chapter 5, Haman was mad again that Mordecai was not giving him the honor that he wanted by bowing down to him. So he goes home and remember he gets his wife and he gets his buddies and he brings them all together and he begins to just boast, to just brag, just go off on how great he was. And he brags about all of his possessions, his, his homes and all that he has. He brags about all the sons that he has, the legacy that's his. And he brags about his position and his authority and how he's invited to a private dinner with the king and the queen. No one else gets to go. Well, here we are now in chapter 9. Haman is dead. Xerxes gave all that stuff that he so cherished, he gave it all to Esther. That position of authority that was his, that he was so proud of, he gave it to Mordecai. And now his sons, his legacy, his boast, they're dead along with him. All of his boasts have been stripped from him. The reversal of Haman's pride has come to its end. And verse 11 says, That very day the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said in verse 12 to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. So make note, they're dead, right? Ten sons of Haman are dead. Just remember that. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, don't keep reading. Go to verse 16. Stop reading verse 12 right there. And go to verse 16. Because verse 16 is going to give us the answer to what happened in all the other provinces outside of Susa. Verse 16. The rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend themselves. And they got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. There it is again. Now, lest your mind start to kind of spurt at 75,000, just remember, the Persian Empire was the largest empire in the known world. 
Most historians mark it at its highest point around 3 million square miles. That's the same general area surface size as the continental United States. So while that second edict didn't neutralize all of the threat, the numbers could have been a lot larger. It did do something. And verse 17 says that it was on the 13th day of the month of Adar that this occurred. And then on the 14th day, the next day, they rested and they made that a day of feasting and gladness. Now I'll go to verse 19. We'll come back to 18, I promise. Therefore, the Jews of the villages, so in the empire outside of Susa, who live in the rural towns, they hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And we're going to talk about that specifically next week because the rest of chapter 9 deals with that. But what we come to terms with right here and, and what is being built into the hearts and the minds of God's people as this story comes to this point is that our God has turned their mourning into gladness. In fact, in verse 22 of chapter 9, the writer will say, and we'll get there next week, the month has been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. It's a working out of what the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 11. You, O Lord, have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. This is the God of great reversals. He is the one that even when his people are faithless, he remains faithful to himself and to his promises. As the writer of Lamentations would say in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. This is the joy of God's people in the surrounding area on the 14th day of the month. He is the God of great reversals whose faithfulness and mercy is new to his people every single day. But here's the thing as I was thinking about it, just from a pastoral perspective. The beauty of Lamentations 3.22 the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. It comes after 20 verses of my life is hell. I'm eating dirt. I'm stricken. I'm broken. There's bitterness in my soul. I'm afraid. Are you against me? Are people against me? What's going on? 20 verses of fear in the heart of God's people. And it comes to verse 21. And he says, but this I, I call to mind. It's, it's this I remember. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Great is his faithfulness. So you've got to remember, the writer of Esther never painted a picture of Esther and Mordecai as devout Israelites. Never at any point did he say that they were specifically or particularly empowered by God's Spirit for what they were doing. Nowhere do we clearly see them or any other Israelite living out the implication of God's covenant with his people. Yet through them, God keeps his covenant promises. If anyone could have mirrored Lamentations 3, it would be God's people in Persia. 
Is this going to be the moment in the face of this edict at the hands of Haman that gives everyone the right to kill us on this day? Is this going to be the moment that God has finally come to an end with me? Is God bringing his judgment on our sin through Haman? Oh, what an irony. Haman's an Agagite. God had decreed his judgment against his ancestors, and Saul didn't do it, and here we are. Now he's going to kill us because of our sin. We didn't go back to Jerusalem. Is God abandoning me here? If anyone could have had the fear of God's abandonment and justice in their heart, it would have been them. Friends, when you and I, we, we're going to face realities in our life that are going to strike that same kind of fear in our heart. And we have a tormentor. We have an enemy of our soul who will whisper in our ears, if you really loved God and if you were really a good Christian, even in the face of this moment, you'd wake up singing, great is thy faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. But do you know what makes that truth so beautiful? It's the context in which he wrote it. It's because the fear is there that our minds can be reminded that even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Esther chapter 9 in the God of great reversals has served for millennia to anchor the hearts of God's people in God's goodness and faithfulness. This time in Israel's history, especially for those that were still in the Persian Empire, they weren't morally exemplary at all. Even so, God's promises couldn't be frustrated. His steadfast love remained. His faithfulness was astounding. And his mercies were new for them every morning. But I skipped some verses. We run headlong into the main theme of the whole story. It all builds to that. He is the God of great reversals, whose steadfast love never ceases, whose mercies to his people are new every single morning. What an encouragement to his people that has been for thousands of years. What an encouragement it was to them that had been in the Persian Empire at that time. But we also run in this chapter headlong into something that for us on, in the 21st century, we often have a hard time grappling with in God's word. So let's go backwards through the verses that I skipped and, and wrestle with this a little bit together. Verse 18 says, The Jews who were in Susa, they gathered on the 13th day and the 14th day, and then rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. So, so why did Israelites in Susa rest on the 15th day and not the 14th day like every other Israelite in the Persian Empire? Well, we got to go back to what we skipped in verse 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. Verse 12, Xerxes says, what is your wish to Esther? It shall be granted to you. And, and what is further your request? It shall be fulfilled. Now pay attention, the writer gives us no commentary on why Xerxes offers Esther this, this third make-a-wish moment in her life. We have no clue, no commentary at all, but he does. And it's here at this moment in Esther's response that a flashpoint of sorts shows up that makes this episode in the history of God's people hard for a lot, to, a lot of people to grapple with. Verse 13, listen to how Esther responds. 
Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. I want a second day. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now, I asked you earlier, what was the fate of Haman's sons on the 13th day? What happened to them? They're dead. They're already dead. She wants them brought and put on the stick with their dad. And so the king commanded this to be done. And a decree was issued in Susa. And the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also, not just on the 13th day, but the 14th day of the month of Adar. And they killed 300 men in Susa. But here it is a third time. It's important. They laid no hands on the plunder. So any of you that were planning on the backside of chapter 8 to have any kind of like Esther princess party this week, you might want to reconsider. This is more the Esther of WrestleMania tonight. Has Esther gone rogue? Has the power gone to her head? Has the Esther that endured so many different things throughout the story now gotten to a place of position and authority and power that she can turn around and wield that authority with an iron fist? Well, here's the thing. We get no commentary on this. The writer doesn't tell us whether or not we're to commend Esther for what she does or condemn Esther for what she does. We don't know if angels were singing and celebrating or not. Much like the rest of the story in other parts that we want so much explanation for, we don't get it here. But here's what I'll do. I'll tell you what I'm inclined to think. And it's exactly this, what I'm inclined to think. May find out one day in eternity that I was wrong. But here's what I'm inclined to think. I think that this was not power going to Esther's head. And I'm not trying to rescue Esther from something that should be condemnable. She's done a lot in the story. We just have to leave her there with. But I'm inclined to think this wasn't just power going to her head. That there were reasons that she asked for this second day. So if you go back and look exactly at what she said, the request she made was that the Jews who were in Susa, just in Susa, not in the rest of the empire, but just in Susa, be allowed tomorrow, the second day, to also do according to that day's edict. What were they allowed to do that one day? Chapter 8, verse 11. They were allowed on that one day to defend their lives. You've got to remember, the edict was defensive in nature, not offensive. Esther was not asking for a second day that would allow the Israelites to go out and kill, annihilate, destroy, and plunder anyone that they wanted. They were asking to be allowed to defend themselves for one more day against anyone who would seek to kill them. Why? Susa was the home of Haman, home of his sons, the epicenter of the animosity towards God's people that gave rise to that edict. I'm inclined to think that there's reason enough probably in that place at that time for them to recognize that there were some people around them that weren't going to stop at sundown. The edict that the people of the Persian Empire had to kill, annihilate, and destroy the Jews on that day... I think there's reason to believe that maybe there were some there in Susa where the epicenter of it was that weren't going to stop on that day. So she asked for a second day to defend themselves. 
That's what I'm inclined to think, just because of what it says. I don't think it was just power for the sake of power. Now, as far as skewering his sons, well, yeah, that just makes me wince. I don't know what to do with that. It certainly was a normal tactic used in those days to deter any further threat. This is the one who came up with the edict. These are the ones who are running the show. You want to go the way of Haman? Right there, buddy. Maybe politically wise. I don't know. We don't get commentary on it at all. We don't get information as to whether we should cheer or we should boo. But here's the thing. It's not just Esther's moment here that makes us wince. If we're really honest, there are going to be a lot of people that you're going to talk to, and it might be some of you in here this morning, that are going to struggle with the reality of this violence itself. I thought God was about loving your enemies. Is this really what he's like? I mean, was Christopher Hitchens right? Is, is God a moral monster? Friends, on the one hand, this, this episode in, in Esther chapter 9, it is simply a continuation of a series of battles and a long line of battles that as we come face to face with them in God's word, we are asked to examine the honest reality of what we believe in our hearts about God's holiness and our goodness. And I say it that way specifically because the question we have to ask ourselves as we seek to understand even this episode in Esther chapter 9 is, do I have a diminishing view of God's holiness and an exalted view of my own goodness? Because if that's the case, that will change everything about how we understand this. Is my view of God's holiness diminishing? Is my view of my own goodness growing? You see, the only way to rightly understand episodes like this in the Bible is to understand them in the full context of the redemptive story. Esther chapter 9, this battle, this day, it's a piece of a story, inside a story, inside a story, inside a story that's part of one big story. And if we don't understand it in light of the big story, we're going to distort our understanding of what's actually happening. Esther chapter 9 is a story that is rooted in God's redemptive story that starts all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve set themselves against God and sin entered the world. They aligned themselves as God's enemies. And from that day forward, from the moment that sin entered into God's creation, sin has been and always will be an opposition to God, an opposition that is expressed in our disobedience to him. And there in the garden, think about it in the context of what we heard in the story of Esther. There in the garden, God pronounced an irreversible decree of death against Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. Because of their sin, an irreversible decree was made that all who come from Adam and Eve will die because of their sin. Guess what? That's all of us because we're all sinners. 
And if you begin to follow the larger story out, you have to come to terms with the fact that at any point along the way, God could have justly destroyed the entire earth and everyone in it. Because at no point and in no time was anyone truly good by God's standards. But here's the thing. As we have diminishing views of God's holiness and exalted views of our own goodness, we're led to misunderstand God's judgments against sin. Do you know what happens? We actually try to bring a reversal of our own. We actually begin trying to reverse roles with God, and we begin judging Him as though He's the defendant. Yet that wasn't the end of the story in the garden. God issued, again, think about the context of Esther, God issued a counter-decree of sorts, a decree in which He promised to redeem for Himself a people out of sin and into His righteousness, removing them from His judgment and into His deliverance. And this plan went into motion when God chose for himself a people, when God committed himself to this people, when he said, you're going to be mine, I'm going to be yours. God gave them that promise. He gave them himself. He gave them a place where they would dwell, and he promised them that their descendants would be innumerable. And from that point forward, God was with them, and God went before them. And God would do battle against sin and evil on their behalf. Anyone and anything that would threaten his chosen, his beloved, and his plan. In fact, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 13, the famous song of Moses, right after God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, Moses sings this song. And it's the first place in the Bible that we have God described by his people as a warrior. They said, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is our warrior. And it's from that point in the story forward that our king, our warrior, goes before his people doing battle with sin and evil. From the very beginning of the story, God in his holiness and justice has been against sin and evil. And the Old Testament, in particular, the episodes like Esther chapter 9, like the stories in Joshua, like the battles in Judges, they can only be rightly understood within a story that reveals a God who is committed to eradicating sin and evil and renewing his creation. You see, it's, it's the story of redemption. It's the entire narrative of redemption that has to be the backdrop to understanding Esther 9. The Bible, from creation to new creation, reveals a God at all times who has been unchanging, who is holy, who is just, and who is good. Anytime we want to rip any of these stories out of their larger context and try to understand them or judge them leads us to distorting their reality. I mean, just imagine trying to enjoy Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Is that his famous famous? Not really a scholar here. Imagine trying to enjoy it by only listening to the bass instruments. It would be loud, it'd be powerful, but it would be deficient. In fact, it would do a disservice to the entire score and to the entire symphony itself. See, if we'd come to episodes like Esther chapter 9 and we try to understand them outside of the full redemptive story, it's like listening to the music of the Bible without the full symphony of Scripture. 
This is the very thing that happens when people like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, brilliant men, I'm not, I'm not denying that, brilliant men, pull out episodes of the Bible, hold them up like Esther chapter 9, and say, see, this thing is horrible for humanity. We should get rid of this thing in any place that it exists. But of course, their presentation of Esther chapter 9 is skewed. They're not bothering to understand the story in light of the bigger picture, but guess what? They would never settle for anyone doing that with anything they say. But that's the very thing that happens. If we don't understand these things in light of the full picture of who God is, what he is doing, we're going to come to an incomplete conclusion. God brought his perfect judgment against the people who sin deserved it. And in his sovereign plan, the day of the Lord for them had come. And at times throughout Israel's history, God would allow his people to be the instrument of his justice and judgment. That is what is happening in Esther chapter 9. It is finishing a battle that started a long time before, when God delivered his people out of Egypt. You might remember if you were with us earlier in Esther, and the Amalekites attacked them in the desert. God said, a day is going to come when I'm going to blot them from the face of the earth, what they have done. That day came to King Saul, remember? King Saul, 1 Samuel 15, went to battle against the Amalekites to deliver the judgment of God. But guess what he did? He spared King Agag and he put his hand on the plunder for himself. So we wind up in Esther with Haman, a descendant of Agag, now issuing the same decree against God's people to blot them from the face of the earth. Esther chapter 9 is the conclusion of the judgment of God against the people whose sin deserved his justice. And the details the writer gives us in this chapter help us to understand as we read it that this is how God's people saw what was happening too. That's why I said, make note, every time we saw it, three times, verses 10, verses 15, and verses 16, the writer says that God's people laid no hand on the plunder. They were allowed by virtue of the edict to not just kill anyone who attacked them, but to take anything that was theirs, to plunder them, because that's what the first edict said people could do to them. So why didn't they do it? I mean, imagine yourself a, a struggling Israelite in the Persian Empire. You've kept your head down. You've worked hard. You've got a home. You've got your family. Someone comes to attack you. You overwhelm them, and you have the right to everything that's theirs. The fortune of your life could change on a dime right there. Why would you not take it? You had every legal right to put your hand to it. But in understanding that what was happening here in Esther chapter 9, in the minds and the hearts of God's people, they saw the bigger picture. See, every time God would go to battle against sin and evil through his people, he would tell them, go back and read Joshua, go back and read Judges, do not put your hand on the plunder. Put to the sword the animals, put them to the sword. Like Abraham told the king of Sodom, I'm not even going to take your sandal lest you come back and say one day I'm the one that made him rich. When God went before his people on behalf doing battle against sin and evil, they were not to put their hand to the plunder. They were to trust him. They had every right here to do it. But in the very fact they didn't do it, it helps us see they understood the context of what was happening. And in the full redemptive story, in the bigger picture that Esther 9 is a part of, We've got to be honest. 
God's judgments, His justice, they're always holy, they're always right. But very often, Israel's execution of it was not. So just as God's holiness would go before them and do battle against Satan's sin and death, doing justice and judgment on those who were deserving of his justice for their sin, God would do battle against his own people at times too. And he would use the nations around them to execute his just judgment against his own people's sin, which is how they ended up in exile in the first place, how they ended up in Persia in the first place. And throughout the entire story, as we trace it through, we see the exalted reality of God's holiness. We see the true reality of our sinfulness, which is the perfect recipe for God's judgment, which is always good. It's always perfect. The problem is we think we're really good, and we're not. Episodes like Esther chapter 9, they they bring us to a place where they allow us to confront the reality that the real question as we come to it is not why did God bring his judgment on people like Haman and the Amalekites? The right question in the full redemptive story is why have any of us been spared to this point? Because we're not innocent. The reality is, as our view of God's holiness diminishes and our view of our own moral goodness is exalted, we're led to overestimate things and put ourselves in a position of judgment over God. Our sinful hearts try to bring a reversal of different sorts. Praise God, this isn't the end of the story though. You've gotta understand it in light of the full picture. As Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is this. Episodes in the Bible like Esther 9 were simply an early phase of the battle that comes to its climax on the cross and its completion at the final judgment. Trimper Longman, great Old Testament scholar, just listen to how he words this. With each word of forgiveness, with each healing touch, with each endurance of his disciples' foolishness, Jesus takes upon himself the consequences of sin and bondage. Not Israel's failure only, but the world's. The God of battle. The one we see throughout the entire story doing battle against evil and sin itself. The God of battle carries sin and suffering with his own groans and finally takes on the cross his own sovereign wrath upon himself. Longman says, holy war takes on a new meaning in light of the cross. The divine warrior the one we met back there in Exodus 15 have watched throughout the story. The divine warrior who formerly drove the sword into the heart of Israel and Judah for their own sin is himself pierced by the same sword, now in the hands of Rome. The vengeance of God has marched forth to divine sacrifice. The love of God has mounted the throne of the cross. See, the story kept going. God brought the war to our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death, and he did it through his son. See, it was on the cross. It was edict versus edict. It was the irrevocable edict of death that our sin deserved and the irrevocable edict of a good God who said, I'm going to to have a people for myself. It was on the cross. It's edict versus edict that God delivered to his own son the wrath and the judgment that we deserved for our sin. 
pull the stories out of their context and you miss it. God's not an angry God over here and a vengeful God over here and a nice and merciful God over here. On the cross, we see the fullness of the unchanging character of God. Sin deserves his holy judgment. And his goodness and his mercy promised a way through it. The cross reveals the unchanging nature of God. His justice is good. And it's not until we actually reach the cross in the story that we come face to face with the reality that there are no innocent defendants before God. You see, it's only at the cross that we see the sinless one and the innocent one being judged. You see, if you're going to read the story and you're going to read it in its entirety and you're going to read it in its context, it's only at the cross that anyone can go, that's not fair. You, you can't read these stories in Esther chapter 9 and Joshua and Judges and go, that's not fair. It's a diminished view of God's holiness and an exalted view of our own goodness that leads us to sit in judgment over that. It's only at the cross that we can go, that's not fair. Because Jesus was the only truly innocent and sinless one. See, the deepest and most significant part of salvation is that you and I are actually saved from something that is truly terrible. It's something that is real. And that something is the wrath of God directed towards our sin and evil. But now, because of Jesus, the whole story, now because of Jesus, God's irrevocable decree of death, it's been countered by his decree that all who would believe in his son should not suffer under his wrath but be delivered into his presence where there is fullness of joy for all eternity. See, it's only when you see the whole story that you can begin to understand that all of God's violence against sin and evil can only be understood in the shadow of the cross. Because it's on the cross that the divine warrior, our king, waged war on sin and evil on behalf of his people whom he promised he would deliver. Karen Jobes has been our, our guide through Esther, so I'll let her bring us to a, a conclusion here this morning. She said that God has taken the wages of our sin. In his son, he has suffered the vengeance of evil. The vengeance due to us for our sins against others and due to them for their sins against us has been satisfied in Jesus' body on the cross. It is only on the basis of recognizing that the penalty of our sin has been paid by Jesus that you and I can have any hope of forgiving others as we have been forgiven. And she says that specifically because it's only because of Jesus. It's only because of the work of God's grace to us on the cross that you and I don't run around anymore crying out holy war on other people. Everything has changed. It's another story for another time, but any modern nation that decries holy war on any other people, go and look at it for yourself, is a nation that denies the truth of the gospel. The gospel has changed everything. Now, by the grace of God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
everything has changed. And God's very mercy of giving us his spirit is the only reason that we can have any power at all necessary to begin to think about even loving our enemies as ourselves. It's because of Jesus that the weapons of the war that God equips his people with have changed. The theater of battle God calls us into has changed. It's no longer against flesh and blood. The battle God wages and calls his people into is against powers and principalities and the weapons of that battle are faith and hope and love and the gospel and the word of God and the power of his spirit. Make no mistake, a day is going to come when God is going to return and the fullness of his justice and judgment against sin and sinners who do not repent of their sin and believe in his son is going to come. Which is why now, you and I on this side of the cross have the marching orders of our king to go. The battle isn't flesh and blood anymore. The battle is for the hearts and joy of people who have not yet seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So he says, go, here's the, here's the order, go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And guess what? Go and do it with full confidence that all authority that you could ever imagine, heaven and earth, is, is me. It's in me. And here's the thing. I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. So go. Go. Friends, if you were here this morning and you... You have never repented of your sin. If you have never recognized your exalted view of your own goodness, the exalted view of your own self-righteousness, if you've never repented of your sin and cast your hope with all you are on what God has done for you in his son this morning, God would call you to do that very thing. Because a day is going to come when he is going to return and the fullness of his judgment against sin and evil is going to be brought. But this morning, with the very breath that you're about to take, he is extending his mercy and his kindness and his patience to you. And he calls you to himself to know the fullness of joy that he has created you for. For those of you that are here this morning, you have repented of your sin, you've tasted God's grace and the work of his son, much like God's people in Esther 9, now is the time for us to rejoice because the greatest of reversals in all of human history has occurred for you. Your dead heart has been given life. The judgment that you deserve for your sin was taken by God the Son himself. It's a time to rejoice. And so this morning, we're going to respond to God's word. And we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect in silence. For some of you, I would call you this morning by the grace of God to repent of your sin. For others of you, allow this story, allow this moment as you read through it this week to remind you of just how good, how holy, how just, how merciful God has been to you. May your understanding of his holiness be exalted. And may, may your thoughts of your own goodness be put in the place that they deserve to be. I'm going to pray for us this morning. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect, and then we're going to continue to respond by remembering Jesus' sacrifice, the battle on the cross, edict versus edict.
where God poured out his judgment on his son in our place for our sin. We'll sing and we'll be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the glimpses into the fullness of your person and character. God, we, we are so grateful that you never change and that your goodness is just. Your justice is good. And just as you have promised to make a way through the judgment we deserve for our sin, you have done that very thing in your son. This morning we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would do that miracle in our hearts that only you can do. Help us to see you rightly. Help us to have the only appropriate, exalted understanding of your goodness and your holiness that we might have a right understanding of our desperate need for your mercy. That we might see you for who you are and truly enjoy the depths of your grace down deep in our soul. That we might be able to say, Great is your faithfulness. Your steadfast love endures forever. We know the truth of your mercies being new for us every day. We ask this morning that that would be our song in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.